I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. In the early 90s, we had a lot of earthquakes, and that reaction to me being on camera with the baby, comforting a baby essentially as I'm comforting the city, that was, you know, people explicitly talked about that because of that image, and it was like, oh, this isn't just about science. This is really about psychology and reassurance. And that started me in a process towards saying, you know, what's important here is, the, is, is telling people what we know rather than what we don't know. That's Dr. Lucy Jones, known around the world because of her talent for translating the scary uncertainties of earthquakes into language the rest of us can relate to. She's now putting her communication skills to work to help communities prepare for the inevitability of future earthquakes in her home state of California and to prepare the rest of us for the inevitability of global climate change. This is so great to be talking to you because this is a subject that has obsessed me for many decades. You mean the earthquakes? Yes. There's two two things about you that I'm obsessed with. One is what you study, which is earthquakes, and the other is how you communicate about earthquakes. It's just extraordinary how, how well you communicate. Oh, thank you. Uh, it is. It was a learning process. Um, I think I, I do it differently now than I did in the nineties. Oh, that's great. Tell me about that. How it was? I remember you were already on the road to being a great communicator in the nineties when you showed up after one earthquake, holding your baby son on camera. I thought that was a great touch. Did you did you wake him up to bring him into the studio? <laughs> no, it's because my husband's also a seismologist and a couple years earlier he'd moved over to Caltech. So when the next big earthquake happened, we both needed to respond and it was 10 o'clock at night and we didn't have babysitters on call at 10 o'clock at night. So actually I was already in the lab responding to an earlier earthquake. He was putting the boys to bed actually was patting our five-year-old on the back and went, Sven, if you don't start stop jumping around, you're never going to get to sleep, and then realized it was an earthquake and not Sven. Um, <laughs> I've heard them compared to subway trains rumbling through, but never a kid jumping around. <laughs> well, they both, you know, so he pulled both uh, the five-year-old and the one-year-old out of bed and, and came on in, and then there was a computer crisis, you know, back in the 90s. You had big computer rooms, and he had to go in there. So he literally handed me the baby in the middle of an interview because you have to. And that the reaction to me being on camera with the baby helped me understand that people were turning to scientists after earthquakes, not for the science information, well, only partly for the science information that I found so interesting, but also for reassurance and comfort. You know, that the earthquake scares you because everything becomes uncertain. Mm -hmm. And when you, you know, you come to the scientists and, and we give it a name and we give it a number and we give it a fault, we're, we're saying somebody understands what happened to you. And that is reassuring. And that really strong response to me doing it as a mother, comforting a baby essentially as I'm comforting the city, that was, you know, people explicitly talked about that because of that image. And it was like, oh, this isn't just about science. This is really about psychology and reassurance. And that started me in a process towards saying, you know, what's important here is, the, is, is telling people what we know rather than what we don't know. 
And, you know, for scientists, what we don't know is what in, what's interesting. Mm. You know, once it's settled, we stop caring. It's boring. We go on to something else, right? <laughs> but, but for and, us in the public, we, we get scared by what we don't know, right? Exactly. And so we have to fill this different function. And, of course, scientists aren't all that comfortable communicating. The reporters show up. My God, how do I get this geek to, to talk? Well, they've learned that— <laughs> They've learned that asking a scientist, what did you learn, is a good way to get a scientist excited and talking. But what that meant is that we were then telling people what we didn't know about earthquakes and learned differently from this one, rather than saying, you know, most of this was understood. We told you those were bad buildings. And and I, and I realized that what we were doing was communicating that earthquakes were really uncertain and unknowable, and that increases the fear. Well, I tried to learn as much as I could about earthquakes when I realized I was going to spend a lot of time in L.A. shooting, shooting the, the MASH television show. So I rented a house, and I bought an earthquake map, and it laid out all the faults, and I went to work at 20th Century Fox in Beverly Hills and looked at the map and saw it was surrounded on three sides by earthquake <laughs> faults. <laughs> and those were all active ones. You would have been between the Newport Inglewood, the Santa Monica, and oh, the Hollywood Oh, God, don't fault. tell me. <laughs> I used to get on a plane every week to go back to New Jersey. And the last thing I would do was look out the window as we took off expecting to see the earth rumble under under, <laughs> under the flight. And then I was in New Jersey one time sitting in my in the room where I did writing and I felt the subway go, rumble underneath me and then I realized there are no subways <laughs> in, in that part of New Jersey. And I was in a 3 point something earthquake in New Jersey. I couldn't escape them. Well, they happen everywhere. You know, I when I moved from uh, I grew up in Los Angeles and then went to Brown as an um, undergraduate in MIT for graduate school. And moving to Boston, it was the first time I'd ever experienced subways. And every time the subway would go by, I think it was an earthquake. And it took me like a year or, or two before I could ignore the subways going fast. You have such a human presentation of your science. I want to know in a personal way, when you feel an earthquake or, or something you think is an earthquake, what's your, what's your emotional reaction? I've spent my life studying these things. And, you know, one thing about being a seismologist is you don't get to create your own experiments. you got to <laughs> wait for what the earth gives you. Um, and so my first thought is usually data. Oh, what is this? And actually, I start counting as soon as I feel it. Mm. because What do you learn from that? It depends on exactly what I'm feeling. Um, earthquakes produce two types of waves, P waves and S waves, and uh, which actually stand for primary and secondary. It took us a long time to realize that what it was was a sound wave and a shear wave. The sound waves travel faster and get to us first. And if you feel both of those waves, the time between them is the distance to the earthquake. Oh, Just like you know, the distance when you, to the epicenter, you mean? Right, to the distance to where it began. You know, think about thunder and lightning, and it's like five seconds per mile for the mm -hmm. time between here, you know, seeing the lightning and, and f hearing the thunder. Well, the PNS wave, it's actually five miles per second. Mm -hmm. So if there's three seconds between the waves, the earthquake was beginning 15 miles away from you. Um, so that's the first thing. But often you miss the P wave 
or you uh, humans often hear it because it is a sound wave or animals will hear it and the humans only perceive the s wave that's where some of the room you know the stories of animals predicting earthquakes come from so is there anything any truth to those stories about animals only in so no no the only thing is they feel the beginning of the earthquake that we sometimes miss so um, i don't need to keep a canary no canaries doesn't or do you chicken, any goodness. Like keep or snakes. Snakes were a big popular one. Doesn't work. No. So that one's not out. But you and the, if you then only are feeling the S wave, or you know, feel the P, feel the S, count the duration of the S, that tells you how big the earthquake is, uh. because the earthquakes begin at epicenters, but they rupture over a surface. I like to use an analogy of snapping our fingers. When we snap our fingers, we put two surfaces in frictional contact, you push them together and the friction keeps them from moving sideways. If they weren't pushed together, you'd move them past each other without making a noise, which shows you that if the earth, the fault could open up, you wouldn't have an earthquake because there wouldn't be any friction. Uh, so faults don't open up. In fact, you know, so the pressure keeps them together. You finally overcome the friction and slip suddenly and release energy in the form of a sound wave. But you can't snap your fingers at a point. You need a surface. And the same thing with an earthquake. It, it, they don't happen at epicenters. They begin at epicenters and then rupture over a surface. When, when you say they don't happen at epicenters, what do you mean? Meaning that an earthquake is the process of one block of rock moving past the, another mm. that, and releasing shaking as one of its effects. Just like when I move my fingers past each other and snapping my fingers, one of the things that happens, I release a sound wave. Um, but that – so – you need a surface that one side moves past the other. Um, but they don't happen all at once. It starts in an epicenter and moves down the fault. Just like uh, another good analogy, uh, have a, a small rug on, a, on wall-to-wall carpeting and you decide you put it in the wrong place. You, need to, you want to move it over a foot. If you just grabbed one end and tried to pull it, the friction would keep it from moving. Instead, what you do is you'd go to the other end of the, fall, of the rug pick it up, move it over a foot, i.e. reduce the friction, <laughs> hmm. create a ripple, and then you'd push the ripple down the rug and accomplish moving over the, the, the rug. And it's the, what we call a rupture front is essentially that ripple in the rug that allows the fault to move. And as the, that ripple moves down the fault, that's what's releasing the energy. So if you begin at a point and you travel for 10 meters – uh, and it moves at two kilometers a second, that's over in a small fraction of a second, and that's a small earthquake. The farther it goes, the bigger the earthquake because every point releases energy, so a bigger fault produces more energy. And um, a magnitude 7, like the one we had in July in 2019, um, that ruptured a fault that was about 30 miles long, and at two miles a second rupturing down the fault, that took 15 seconds for the earthquake to occur. So, so the where, earth would, was, where would the epicenter have been in that, in that well, in, quake? In that quake, actually, the epicenter was just south, was east of the city of Ridgecrest and south of the China Lake Naval Weapons Center. And then the fault uh, extended up into the weapons center, the, the Navy base. And so uh, it started at that one point and then ruptured up into the base, which is why the base is where most of the damage happened. It's billions of dollars of damage to equipment and buildings on the base. Does the knowledge of where faults are actually give you some hints about where you can build things? 
Uh, only sort of. Uh, you were talking about that fault map of L.A. Yeah. and how many of them there were, right? We have about 300 faults that are considered active and long enough to produce at least a magnitude 6 across Southern California. And over the next 100,000 years, every one of them is going to move. Which ones happen in the lifetime of your building? That's a random subset of that larger thing. So it gives you information, but it isn't at the level that says build here, don't build here. If you said, I'm not going to build within five miles of an active fault, we'd have to walk away from California. And essentially, most of Los Angeles and San Francisco and the Bay Area would, would bye-bye. Right? And that, that doesn't really make sense when those earthquakes maybe only happen once every 1,000, 2,000 years. So that's something I don't quite understand. Ascribing a frequency to an earthquake the big ones are rare, right? The little ones right. are common. But when you say an earthquake is overdue... I don't say that. Uh, oh, okay. That's a good start. Why? Yeah, and right. Tell me why. Because, because the distribution in time is essentially a, a, a random distribution. So what we would <laughs> say, Poissonian, a random about a rate. So you go and look at a particular fault... Like, let's take the San Andreas Fault, which is our most active one. Really good data shows the last 11 earthquakes. So we have 10 intervals. Um, the average length of that interval is about 100 years. Three of them are less than 50 years apart. One of them, it's over 300 years apart. So the rate is once every 100 years. And that's but sort of it, an average but it's a Poissonian, it's a rate. It's like every year has a 1% random chance of having that earthquake. Right. And yet, in real life, these earthquakes, these big ones could cluster uh, right. and, and, not, and then not show up again for a long time. We in the public might really misinterpret those numbers. That's right. And this is one of those communication issues that the scientists sort of assume you understand what Poissonian random distribution I can't even rate pronounce means. it. What is it again? <laughs> say, Poisson, say it again. Like Poisson is a Poissonian. Oh, Poissonian. Yeah, right. Of course. Right. Right. How silly of me. <laughs> and yet when we assume that people know this, and, and there is, there's another aspect of science communication in that we sort of theoretically didn't expect it to be Poissonian, right? It's you, you push on the fault till it breaks, just like snapping your fingers. You push till you overcome the friction. It shouldn't be Poissonian. Uh, and the reason what we think is going on, as you know, we dug into data, the more data we got, the farther away we got from saying we could predict the time of the next earthquake. And um, we think what's happening is that you don't need to get to the failure strength on the whole fault. You get to failure strength at some tiny point, and you start to slip there, and then the fact that the fault is moving makes it weaker. The, the scientific term would be to say that dynamic friction is lower than static friction. Once you've started moving, it's easier to keep moving. Ah, and, that's interesting. So you don't know where that's going to occur either. Right. So it could begin anywhere, and it's more like this random distribution of when you get that trigger. And and then you get – and then maybe you've just produced a magnitude 1. We have magnitude 1s every day. Mm. When is the time you're going to produce that 8? Well, you need to have a fault that's long enough to give you an 8 and that's weak enough 
to be able to let that rupture keep on moving through. So the weird thing has become San Andreas produces the biggest earthquakes because it's the weakest fault. Mm. And, and, and then you get started, and once you get started on the San Andreas, we don't have little earthquakes on the San Andreas. We have little earthquakes around it. And then it's like once something actually begins on the San Andreas, it'll grow to a big one. And that could be – and that really seems to be random. When I was out in California worried about earthquakes, mm-hmm. I thought it was really important – to predict when an earthquake would happen. And I think from listening to you, I have a different feeling about it. It's not so much what, what, where, how much time do I have to get ready for saving my life. It's more what, what goes into building. The building, the preparedness that, that goes back, extends back from the earthquake months or years or decades or centuries, uh, absolutely. Uh, I'd like to put it that, you know, do you want two hours to get out of a building or a building that doesn't fall down in the first place? And when you think of it in those terms, you go, yeah, I want that building because I want a home to come back to and a job to have. It's just uh, in conflict with our emotional response to earthquakes. So when we think about earthquakes, because they're unpredictable, you can't see them coming you know, it, it all that uncertainty part, we become very afraid of when is it going to hit. And that's it's pretty deeply wired in, in human psychology about that. Um, and the But when you really look at what earthquakes do, especially in California where we have put building codes in place, where there's a lot of seismic safety measures that have been undertaken, you're – you're far more likely to be murdered in Los Angeles than die in an earthquake in Los Angeles. Um, and, that, and that's true in everywhere in California. It's not just a high murder rate in Los Angeles. Um, but we don't think of it that way. And yet when we did a model, we, we, we tried to understand what the big San Andreas earthquake would be like. Because as seismologists, we could see a lot of things that were going to happen that weren't being prepared for. Like I can tell you exactly where a gas line is going to break because it crosses the San Andreas Fault. Mm. And when the earthquake happens and moves it, one side's going to be 20 feet away from the other. It'll break. It'll cause a fire. And and we all knew this, and yet it didn't seem to be affecting any sort of planning. So we said, okay, let's stop talking about when the earthquake's going to be, what's the probability of having the earthquake, and let's start talking about what this earthquake's going to do. And we created this big scientific study. We called it the shakeout scenario to try and and get a scientifically plausible story. You know, that whole thing, scientists reject stories because they give us the wrong answer. The plural of anecdote is not data. And yet human (laughs) beings beings make decisions because of stories. So creating this scenario was essentially a scientifically plausible story that would help people connect to what was happening, but with, you know, all the scientists would agree this is, this is a really likely sort of picture of what the earthquake's going to be like. In doing that, well, good news is the gas company has gone and put shutoff valves at those places. We said this is exactly where it's going to break uh, and a lot of other sort of things like that. But in the story, and this is one of the really bad earthquakes, a 7.8 on the San Andreas that focuses the energy into the L.A. Basin. We estimated 1,800 people would die. 
which seems like a lot except for that this earthquake's only once every, you know, every couple of centuries. Um, but the financial losses were over $200 billion. And it raised the possibility of a really long-term depression because of how difficult it would be to get businesses back up and running when, you know, transportation's disrupted, you don't have water in your houses, you're tired of you get your electricity back, and small business that's out of, you know, out of business for six months doesn't come back. And people so, homeless, perhaps. Yeah. Uh, homeless, jobless. Of, yep. A quarter of a million households would have uninhabitable, would have to leave their homes. Um, lots of jobs not reopening. How many people would just say, this isn't worth it. I'm going to, I'm going to go back to my parents' place in Chicago and, you know, Google will let me telecommute. There's a lot of jobs that you don't have to stay here. And, and then you have cascading problems within the economy. And so when we looked at this picture, the issue is, you know, it's not that you're going to die in the earthquake. It's you might be bankrupted by the earthquake. And yet that's not the way we emotionally think about it. We're taking a On December 14th, 2020, End Blindness will make history by awarding the first ever Sanford and Sue Greenberg Prize to End Blindness. Thirteen pioneering scientists will share $3 million in prizes for their groundbreaking scientific and medical contributions to end blindness permanently and universally. The Greenberg Prize Awards Ceremony, which will stream online, brings together luminaries from arts, sciences, entertainment, and politics, including Art Garfunkel, Margaret Atwood, Al Gore, Michael Bloomberg, and more. The award ceremony will also feature a moving tribute to the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg, a longtime supporter of the End Blindness Movement, including extensive footage of Justice Ginsburg reading from Hello Darkness, My Old Friend, the memoir of End Blindness 2020 co-founder Sanford D. Greenberg. If you want to learn more about End Blindness, you can read about it in Hello, Darkness, My Old Friend. And for a special treat, you can listen to the book read by Art Garfunkel. For more, go to SanfordGreenberg.com. Join us on December 14th, 2020 at 7 p.m. Eastern at www.EndBlindness2020.com to be a part of this historic moment. That's EndBlindness2020.com. Short break, and when we return, Dr. Lucy Jones tells me about a major effort she's been leading to prepare communities for earthquakes, and how she's now taking the lessons she's learned doing that to prepare communities for a far larger threat, the looming climate crisis. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Dr. Lucy Jones. So how do you communicate this, which is a dire picture, not only 1,800 people dying, um, but bankruptcy, homelessness, hunger, lack of water? Mm -hmm. How do you communicate that without scaring them into just uh, denial and uh, inactivity? Well, it seems to have worked. What we decided to do, we, we released this in 2008, and we decided to create a public event to focus on earthquake preparedness, get people to think about it, try to—a lot of these damages are preventable, but we don't do them because we don't think of that as being the issue. And uh, so we created what we called the ShakeOut Drill. Now, there's 23 million people in Southern California. Uh, we couldn't talk to everyone, so we created um, talks about them and you know trained people to go out and give the talks. I went to every county of Southern California, and you know would train like a hundred people in each county 
how to talk about this and take the message out to their groups. And then we had them sign up through a website to say they'd participate in the drill. And we turned to the social sciences that said uh, people do what they see other people doing. So we needed to make it visual. So we focused on what we call the drop, cover, hold on part. You know, the best, most safest thing to do in an earthquake is to, to drop to the ground, get under a, a sturdy table if it's nearby, and hold on. And we then did a lot of media stuff, and we got this huge coverage. Uh, we got 5 million people signed up to participate, which is a quarter of the population. And we focused on having fun events. We made it a community thing to, to, to try and work around those um, the fear aspects. So we invested quite a bit of work in doing this. We worked with the media, um, and we worked with a lot of organizations. And it was successful enough that the state came and said, this is a really good idea. We need to keep on doing it. And so we did it again the next year statewide and got 7 million people. And then some other states got interested, and it's grown. It then went international. And actually last year, so the 10th one, um, there were 60 million people around the world mm. participating mm. in the drill. So uh, we, we clearly hit on something. And I think a big part of it is we actually listened to the social sciences. So we tried hard. to We got to focus on what the science tells us and that credibility that carries off with people listening to us, but do it in a way that encourages action. And um, so, yeah, if you really focus on just how many people are going to die in this disruption and how miserable you're going to be, that's a reason not to think about it. But if you focus on your community and how you want your community to be there and how do you help people connect with others in the community, and instead of saying, you need to protect yourself, you need to care for your family, you know, this individual isolating message, we worked at saying, how do you help others? How do you do this in your community? And and ShakeOut is all done with organizations. It's churches and schools and businesses that do it, not individuals. That's, that really struck me when I read in an interview you gave, uh, you were quoted as saying, the research on disasters shows that the communities that recover are the ones where people are connected to each other and care about each other, and which is really what you're talking about. You, you point them in that direction. Yeah, we're actually, I'm really excited about the next thing we're doing. So, you know, I, I retired, completed my federal service a few years ago and, and started a nonprofit, a Center for Science and Society. And we are, just in the next month, we're finally doing our pilot project. We've been working on developing this program of going to a community, one of the poorer parts of Los Angeles County, working with community organizations in that group. So we're inviting churches and schools, and I, there's something called Mexican hometown associations that are big social groups, and uh, working with the, the Mexican consulate as well, and um, helping these organizations be ready for earthquakes. And they're, you know that gets people in. They're scared of the earthquakes. They want to deal with it. But a chunk of what we're doing is connecting those organizations to each other. Create a community plan. How are you going to – what is the resource you can bring to your community afterwards? Oh, I have a kitchen. Oh, well, we have these food stores. And, you know, put these things together about how they're going to help afterwards. I'm excited about it. I, I can imagine you are because it's working. You're getting people yeah. to connect with one another. And it's inspiring to me because I spend a lot of time – 
working on that in, in, in other areas. And this podcast is an attempt to help people think about connecting with other people and get clues about how it, how it works best. And one of the other things, what can we learn from what we've done with earthquakes when we turn to try and deal with climate change? Because that's one of the things that's happened, especially as I'm sort of free from, from a government role and just really what matters, what should I be communicating about? I have found I can't advocate a huge amount of effort going into seismic safety if we aren't going to deal with climate change. Because what's coming from climate change, what could be happening with wildfires in California, with with hurricanes coming up the East Coast, I mean, the, the floods, it's what's coming is going to be so much worse. And yet the problem in some ways is very similar. In both earthquake safety and climate change management, we are facing that we have to turn to scientists to tell us what's going to happen. So it's sort of an abstract thing. Um, and um, we have to take those predictions that the scientists made and use that to spend money now and deny ourselves something now for the benefit of some future that we don't really emotionally connect to. We just have the scientists telling us it's true. Mm-hmm. And historically, the earthquake safety legislation only happened in the aftermath of a big earthquake. Before shakeout, the all seismic legislation in California had been passed within a year of a big earthquake. And with shakeout, we I, I then worked with the city of Los Angeles, and there's major legislation that came through in L.A. There's now a dozen other cities in Southern California that are doing this about mandatory retrofit of buildings, people, you know, telling people they have to spend money now for a future reason, and it's happening without a big earthquake. So what can we learn from why that worked to inform what we need to do about climate change. So that's what I was going to ask you. What What do you think you've learned? How do you think you could apply that? Because you have a model that really works with earthquakes. But how do you get people to think about the future of the planet when they don't have a chance to connect the dots? Well, I I, I don't think I have all the answers, but I'm trying to do this. And then I'm, I'm really hoping we can, you know, try some of these ideas out. One of them was that idea that, you know, when we talked about the probability of an earthquake, we didn't get action. We needed to really focus on the impacts. And I think with climate change, hearing that we're going to be a degree centigrade warmer, that doesn't connect to people. Especially, you know, Americans don't even know what a degree centigrade is. All right, two degrees Fahrenheit. Well, so what? It's 76 instead of 74? What is that? Right? It doesn't feel like it matters. And we need to be much more explicit about the science tells us and we can see from history and here's the data that this means we're going to be having increased numbers of floods and more intense hurricanes and uh, increased in severity of wildfires and stressed ecosystems. No ecosystem in the world at this point is experiencing the climate it was evolved for. Every one of them is experiencing some different climate, mostly hotter. Um That means we're going to have trouble with food. We're talking about famine, water availability. We're talking about disease. Uh, People are going to have to choose between moving and dying, which starts bringing up world war possibilities. And and that's – now we're getting real scary again. Um, But I do think we need to put that out there that this isn't just about a couple degrees warmer. This is really about disruption of human society. And then – what we have to do is figure out how to 
to work together. You know, with the with the earthquake stuff, just the scenario didn't get action. I spent a year in Los Angeles City Hall on with the mayor coming up with seismic safety plans. And in that year, I did 130 public meetings, which I sat down with representatives of the building owners and management association, the Central City Association, the you know, Urban Land Institute, dozens and dozens of organizations. He, and what I did was say, here's the problem. Here's the likely outcome if we do nothing. What do you think we should do? And I think that last step was the most important. I didn't say, here's the problem. Here's why we have to do X. I said, let's talk about what can be done. And it worked because we communicated. And that, I think, is our biggest challenge right now, right? When we see people denying climate change, it makes me want to just go, you're being stupid. You got to believe this. Well, that doesn't change anything. <laughs> it doesn't change right? anybody's mind. It doesn't <laughs> make them smarter well. to tell them they're stupid. <laughs> right, exactly. Well, and I don't, you know, and I, and I think one of the aspects of why people aren't listening is it seems so frightening that we can actually change the planet that I'd rather believe it's not true than that because it's just too awful to believe that it's happening. Yeah. And, and that sort of barrier doesn't come down because you give them more data. It comes down because you sit down together and try to think through the fears and communicate. One novel way Lucy's communicating is through music. She plays the viol de gamba, and she's written a piece of music that lets us hear the climate as it changes. I said each year is a whole note, so I have 138 years, I have 138 measures, and uh, one instrument, the note that they play, that whole note that they play for each measure, is scaled to the average global temperature. So when it gets cold, it goes lower, when it gets hot, it gets higher. And you can then hear that for 100 years, we stay within one octave of the starting note. And in the last 30 years, we've gone two more octaves above, two and a half more octaves above that. You know, science is a process to tell you, help you figure out what's true. It's not a great process for processing emotions. And I think that's this issue. When we're so afraid of what we're doing, turning to science and more data isn't how people make decisions. And, and it's trying to find that process where you don't – it's not saying don't do the science, don't listen to the science. I don't want to use music to do science. <laughs> science is what tells us what's true. But the music helps process the emotions and get us through it. We're trying to create a climate crisis concert um, to use music to process what we're feeling and inspire people to move towards, towards action. And that's what we need to face what, you know, really the biggest moral crisis I think that the humanity's ever faced, that we have to um, care about the future and act together to do it. 
and we have to figure out how to talk with each other. And I, as I said, I don't think earthquakes, the earthquake work has given me all the answers, but I do know we need to focus on communicating, inviting everybody to find solutions. Keep the science in there. It's what tells us what's coming. But let's listen. Solutions are different than facts. The facts are what's happening. Solutions are how we change our behavior to change the outcome. I, sometimes I think I'm socially naive. I think if I can just get people to talk together, we're going to make a yeah, difference. Yeah, right. Well, that's I'm I'm exactly that naive myself. And I tell you, I'm I'm really inspired to hear you not just talk about this, but to relate the experiences you've had where you've had where you've been successful. I'm getting w- signals from the other room that. <laughs> Time to wrap it up, huh? Yeah, the epicenter is calling. (laughs) So we do, at the end of every conversation, we do seven quick questions. I hope you're game for this. They're not not embarrassing questions. Okay, that's good. They're not embarrassing to me anyway, (laughs) because I'm I'm asking them. (laughs) We'll see what I respond. Okay. Okay. What's the hardest thing you've ever tried to explain to anybody? Seismic moment. What's the real energy related in an earthquake is um, incredibly difficult. I once tried to explain 1.2 times 10 to the 26 nine centimeters in a soundbite. Essentially impossible. (laughs) I'm not even going to ask you to get into that. (laughs) Question number two. How do you handle a nosy person? Oh, I actually find nosy people to be the hardest thing. It may not be obvious that I'm an introvert, but I actually am. And um, I need to maintain personal space. And and yet, as a woman, I've been acculturated cult- uh, to be polite to people. Mm-hmm. And I have a very difficult time being rude. I can give you a good anecdote about it. Yeah, uh, good. When it, in the time we were having a lot of earthquakes, and my uh, I was in the grocery store with my son, who was probably I don't know, about six at the time. And somebody recognized me from TV and earthquakes and came up and wanted to ask questions. And um, I was trying to sort of be be polite because I'm it's what we're supposed to do. But but each time I tried to wrap it up, there was another question. And my son finally went, you need to go away. This is my mommy and she's with me now. <laughs> <laughs> Bring that kid with you everywhere you go. You got it. <laughs> I didn't do it very successfully myself. <laughs> How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? You, boy, you're finding the hard things to, to the hardest part of the communication. Um, I mean, one of the ways I sometimes start will be: Why do you think that? Where did you get that from? Have you compared it to this? You know, that's the way the scientists do it. We don't. None of us believe any of us can be absolute right or wrong. We always justify what we have to say. It doesn't usually you know, work with other people, but you can, you can help them go through that process sometimes. What's the strangest question anyone's ever asked you? <laughs> I once got a letter that said, I know you can't tell me when the next earthquake is going to be. But will you tell me when your children go to visit out-of-town relatives? <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> thought you were keeping the information from her. Well, I think that's, that's a really common thing. Again, as a response to fear, it's less scary to believe that I know and I'm not telling that I really don't know. Oh, well. I th- that's maybe one of the things we should think about as a lesson for climate change, too. Mm. 
Okay, here's the next question. How do you stop a compulsive talker? I don't know how to do that. I'm a bit too much of a compulsive talker myself. <laughs> <laughs> you may be compulsive, but you're fascinating. What? How do you start up a true conversation with someone who you've just met at a dinner party? One of the things I've, I've learned to do, I only do it sort of well because it doesn't come naturally, is I need to ask about them. Mm. You know, people always want to talk about themselves and uh, ask for them or ask for their experience or, you know, why they know something. Um, it, it, it's not easy. I tend to like to talk about myself, but talking about others tends to <laughs> Everybody help. Everybody does. Exactly. Here's the last one. And I'm really curious to hear your answer to this. What gives you confidence it comes from inside, and I think it comes from my parents. Um, they believed in me. They encouraged me, and it gave me a place to move from that still thinks that I can do it. Um, and I don't always have confidence. You know, I still suffer from imposter syndrome as each new thing comes along and I get another level of, how am I out here? <laughs> um, I, I don't think we ever get complete confidence in our lives. I get the impression that the honesty you just displayed is probably the, an important factor in why you're such a good communicator, not just honesty, but vulnerability uh-huh. with, with, with clarity, with the sense that you're not going to lose any ground by showing your human side. And, and you, I, I get that impression so much from you. One of my good friends says that my real, that my popularity and my problem is that I suffer from truth Tourette's. <laughs> That's a great ending. Thank you so much, Lucy. It was great talking with you. Oh, thank you, Alan. This is great. Bye. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsors of this episode. All the income from the ads you hear go to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Just by listening to this podcast, you're contributing to the better communication of science. So thank you. Lucy Jones is the founder of the Dr. Lucy Jones Center for Science and Society. It has the mission of providing understandable scientific information, especially about earthquakes and other natural disasters, to the public, to the government, and to our community leaders. Our center is focused on making our cities and towns more resilient in the face of these disasters. Dr. Jones is also the author of a wonderful book aptly titled, The Big Ones. For more information about Dr. Jones, you can visit her website at drlucyjones.com and you can follow her on Twitter at drlucyjones. This episode was produced by Graham Shedd with help from our associate producer, Sarah Chase. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula. Our tech guru is Allison Costin. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.
Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Dr. Joe Handelsman about the vast array of microbes that live in us and on us, as well as the even greater number that lurk in the ground beneath our feet, invisible communities that we depend on for our lives. There's something like between twice and 10 times as many bacterial cells in us as there are human cells in us. So they, they are us and we are them. If you take all the bacteria together, they have a hundred to a thousand fold different kinds of abilities to do things than we ourselves do. Dr. Joe Handelsman brings vividly to life the vital microbial world, the cute little guys we need to keep us alive. Next time on Clear and Vivid. <laughs>